0: This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing... Philo- you know what? I'm going to do it differently this time. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for living they have since attained nirvana. <laughs> Our question for episode 53 is something like, what philosophical insights can we glean from Buddhism? And we'll be speaking to Owen Flanagan, professor at Duke University in philosophy and neurobiology, about his 2011 book, The Bodhisattva's Brain, Buddhism Naturalized. For more information on this episode and discussion that you can participate in, please check out PartiallyExaminedLife.com. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer in a state of transcendent bliss from Madison, Wisconsin.
1: This is Seth Paskin,
2: craving sense pleasures in Austin, Texas.
3: This is Wes Allen suffering in
0: Boston, Massachusetts.
2: This is Dylan Casey, natural and realistic in Middleton, Wisconsin. <laughs>
0: And we will add to Mr. Flanagan in just a few minutes. First, we wanted to just give a brief introduction. What is this book about?
3: Well, it was prompted by the fact that there was publicity to the effect that neuroscience was in the process of empirically verifying that Buddhism can make you happy. And Flanagan thought there was some hyperbole to that. And he he had also had an interest in Buddhism because he had been invited to a discussion with the Dalai Lama and some other philosophers and scientists Even though he's a naturalist and a fan of science and neuroscience, he had some reservations about whether the publicity was warranted. So the first part of the book really addresses that question of whether neuroscience can tell us whether Buddhism makes us happy and whether it can answer that type of question in general. And then, because one of the conclusions of the first part is that we really need a good idea of what we mean by happiness and what Buddhism is and all those sorts of things in order to make that evaluation, he spells out what he calls a naturalized Buddhism would look like in the second half. And by naturalized, he means something that gets rid of superstition and magical thinking. So for instance, he's going to reject what he calls untamed versions of karma, rebirth and afterlife and luminous consciousness and things like that. He wants to sort of
0: nirvana. Yep.
3: get it. Yeah. He wants to get at the philosophical core of Buddhism, which he takes to be a lot like Aristotle's conception of what it means to lead a good life and what it means to be happy. And that tradition is eudaimonistic, Eudaimonia is a Greek word that was once basically translated as happy. It's more often translated as flourishing now. That translation is meant to capture the fact that happiness here isn't just our colloquial conception of happiness as a subjective feeling of a good mood or something like that. It's about having something to do with psychological health, or as Aristotle elaborates it, virtue, excellence, an organism functioning as it should.
0: Great. And if you've tuned into this just to hear about Buddhism, we do talk about that eventually and talk about this book. But Flanagan is also a major figure in the philosophy of mind. So we talk about that a little bit at the beginning, try to draw him into some discussions from past podcasts, including the past one we did on Buddhism. That's episode 27 on Nagarjuna. Also, we did a recent one on Merleau-Ponty and some others on phenomenology. And uh, he has got a section of this book on Buddhist phenomenology. So we talk to him about that a little bit and then get into sort of the meat of his book. You really get a good overall picture, I think, of what he's about as a philosopher and why he would be arguing for a naturalist position and what that means, etc. Let's bring him in. Hello. Hey, we got it. All right. You're on with the whole group here. Fantastic. Do you guys keep your uh, cameras on while you do this? No, we, there are no cameras involved. Too much bandwidth.
1: Yeah, okay. So I'm going to turn my camera off here. Since we can't see each other, pretty much we just interrupt
0: each other a lot. and, and I understand. <laughs> I have all the separate tracks, and I can disambiguate them and take us from on top of each other. And then after all the tracks go together, we do a lot of editing. So don't worry about anything that might come out of your mouth. <laughs>
1: okay. I know that you're for adult listening only, according to uh, your website. <laughs> it's pretty racy. Exactly. That's, yeah, absolutely fine. I trust
0: you, you're the experts. If folks have not heard of Mr. Flanagan, the thing that I had heard of him because of, and I guess this is, was this your breakthrough book, Your Consciousness Reconsidered?
1: I guess that was, uh, yeah, that was about my time of uh, breaking in or uh, breaking through possibly, depending on how you view it. But early 90s, I did two books uh, around that time, Varieties of Moral Personality and then Consciousness Reconsidered. And those are my, still what I think of in many ways, my best work. Yes, but
0: obviously you didn't keep to that particular philosophy of mind realm there. I'm not going to make you give the whole story of why you discovered Buddhism and things like that. We actually have already on the website posted links to not only one of your other podcast appearances, uh, but to your lecture at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Oh, good. Okay. So, folks listening, if you want the full background, if you want uh, our monologue out of Mr. Flanagan, or can I call you O.J.? You,
1: uh, call me Owen. <laughs> you know, actually, what I did uh, for my first teaching job was at a prep school in Massachusetts before I got a regular philosophy job for two years. And uh, in those days, the students did call me O.J. And uh, luckily, that sort of went away. So that was uh, that was very much a good thing that that stopped uh, we did a philosophy of mind episode a couple of years ago now
0: where we read very brief excerpts of a lot of things and it probably would have been good. I had read I looked at your book a little at during that time, but it would have been good to call on that a little more immediately to be kind of a peacemaker between the mysterian Thomas Nagel and the uh, almost behaviorist Dan Dennett position that we read. Dan
1: Dennett, exactly, right. Now, that's what I thought of myself as doing in those days. I mean, I was always very interested and this is a different version than I've told of any how I got into the Buddhism business. I just was always interested in this question about what people are like deep down inside beneath the clothes of culture. And I was very aware of how different theories of mind... I was always interested in the history of psychology, history of concepts of mind. And I was aware of the fact, even back when I was doing pretty straight philosophy of mind, that different people, different cultures, different traditions thought about personhood, the nature of the mind, the nature of the mind-body relation, the nature of reason and emotions connection very, very differently. So it isn't as if the interest in consciousness that I really basically started with wasn't coincidental with this broader interest in what some people call moral psychology. And in fact, Mm -hmm. the same year I published Consciousness Reconsidered, I did this other book called Varieties of Moral Personality, and the subtitle of that was Ethics and Psychological Realism. So these ideas have been, I've been learning new things, but I've been, the interests have been in some ways remarkably uh, consistent. I noticed you talk about phenomenology a lot, that that was one of the things, right, that Dennett, for
0: instance, should have paid more attention to first, which he's not actually, I'm not going to sidetrack the the discussion right. before it gets Let's talk about the Buddhism this. book.
1: <laughs> All right, I'm ready to do
0: that, guys. Go for it. This actually, this is a connecting piece that you talk about phenomenology a lot in both this book and the older book. Right. But I don't see any references to the European tradition phenomenology. It's all William James and those folks, not so much Sartre and Merleau-Ponty and stuff. Is that, do you discard them? What is your take on that? No,
1: no, no, no. My, when I was in graduate school, I read a lot of Husserl and I actually read, I remember uh, reading uh, Merleau-Ponty, who I appreciated quite a bit. I didn't really felt like I got Husserl. And I knew that there was this phenomenological tradition, especially in Germany, but I just didn't feel comfortable and competent with respect to it. But my entry to psychology and my hero from the very beginning, actually, one reason I entitled that book, Varieties of Moral Personality, was echoing William James's varieties of religious experience. Mm -hmm. And I just found that, and I still do now that I'm more of an expert on European phenomenology, I find the program of someone like William James actually much more congenial to the idea that there really are varieties of ways that experience seems to people of different types. I mean, so someone like Husserl was really looking for universal features of human experience. And uh, one possibility, although James didn't go this far, is that that isn't exactly the right way to look at things. You might want to, first of all, just get the texture of the different ways that all kinds of different individuals, whether they be temperamentally different or from different cultural or religious contexts experience uh, their minds. So I was aware of the European tradition, but I try not to speak about whole traditions as opposed to find an author who I really know pretty well, who I think is mm-hmm. exemplary of taking, in this case, experience seriously. And at least in uh, the Anglo-American tradition, there's probably no one better than William James. So. Dennett is uh, tricky on this because uh, he was very, very important in my own philosophical upbringing. When I was still in graduate school, he was in Boston in those days where I was and he was a startlingly brilliant young philosopher of mine. Still is, of course, but he's not young anymore. And uh, I actually wrote my dissertation on um, the origins of Skinner's behaviorism in logical positivism. and. I was talking to B F Skinner a lot at the time but I was also oh. studying with Quine at the time and uh, I was reading papers like Dennett's intentional stance and I was quite aware of the fact that despite his tendencies towards behaviorism he was no longer bound up by positivistic constraints on doing psychology so I always actually just think of Dan Dennett as a uh, a really important excellent philosopher who's not he's certainly not a mysterian and this is where I have trouble with the Mysterians. And I don't even know if I would call Nagel, by the way, a Mysterian. I certainly think Colin McGinn, of course, is the one that I pick out. I call actually Nagel in that work a principled agnostic about solving the mind-body problem, not a Mysterian. A Mysterian, the way I defined it in those days, was that a Mysterian is someone who believes that you will never be able to solve. We humans are epistemically limited, such that we will never ever be able to solve the mind-body problem or what Dave Chalmers ended up calling the hard problem of consciousness. A principled agnostic like Nagel and what it's like to be a bat and uh, other papers takes the position that he doesn't see for sure that we'll never be able to solve it, nor is he confident, as people like Dennett and I are in some moods, that it's just a matter of time before neuroscience solves the problem of consciousness. It may be in the same form that something like the problem of life was solved in 1957 by Watson and Crick, something like that.
2: Can I ask a kind of maybe stupid or naive question is what would it mean to say you solve that problem? I mean, and even the saying that the problem of life was solved in 1957 by Watson and Crick, that's also not altogether clear. Right. Saying that everything that's living as is DNA isn't the same thing as saying what makes a living thing a living thing. Exactly. So, I'm just wondering what the terms of solving that problem are.
1: Yeah, no, I get, I get what you're saying. Well, you picked exactly up on what I was sort of uh, sweeping under the rug. I said in the same way that we have a solution okay. in 1957 <laughs> because the way that I think about it sometimes is that sometimes philosophical problems that seem insurmountable... Don't actually get solved in the deep way that philosophers sometimes ask for, namely, give me a solution that explains what consciousness is in any possible world that it exists in. I actually think that may be a kind of a question that we won't be able to answer. But I think about it this way you might say this Once upon a time, we'll say 14 billion years ago, there was the singularity that banged. And when the singularity banged, whatever it was made of was not organic. So at some time, that inorganic stuff, the stuff that could be explained by physics and chemistry, somehow or other gave rise to life. Now, we still don't actually have a complete and satisfactory explanation about how that occurred in the first place, how those unicellular organisms came to be. We also don't have the next explanation, which is an explanation about how living things which were not sentient, supposing they weren't sentient. Some people, of course, think that they were. But supposing that there was first non-life and life emerged and then life existed but not sentience, but then life with sentience emerged. We don't have good historical explanations. We have something like even in science, we have explanation sketches of how those things happen, right? And then with Watson and Crick, you're exactly right. You picked up on exactly the right point. That doesn't tell us. It tells us what material substances, life as we know it and are interested in it, supervenes on and basically some of the mechanisms by how it's transformed and transcribed and transmitted. But I don't think that's completely irrelevant because you might think about things like water is H2O. That's actually something which is, I ask my students, I say, how many of you have done the hydrolysis experiment that shows that water is H2O? And only usually two or three in a philosophy class have ever done the experiment in high school of separating out hydrogen and oxygen from the molecule. You shouldn't do it at home because it's dangerous and all that. But you could continue to be skeptical to this day about even the water H2O identification, because no one ever sees the wet potable stuff that we call water at the same time they see those atoms. I mean, they're not simultaneously cited they're just procedures in a web of theory. This is the influence of Quine. They're inference to the best explanation given an overall web of theory about how the thing works. And I think that's what my view about consciousness being solved. I make the distinction between there being a satisfactory explanation of consciousness and a satisfying explanation of consciousness. And I think the same way with the explanation of life, it's still not to this day entirely satisfactory. We don't have all the details and we may never have all the details. And we certainly don't have even... Some people, say we don't have a clue about how consciousness emerges. But actually, there's some neuroscientific research which would say, well, insofar as we're studying the brain, we're studying conscious and unconscious processing, and we're getting closer and closer to the underlying mechanisms that explain all the different kinds of processing which take place. And I think that will someday, I think the problem will not so much be solved as kind of go away, that people will just start to say, oh, mental life occurs in the brain. That's the inference to the best explanation and these structures are more important to its explanation than these other structures say higher brain structures versus lower brain structures
3: something like that it's interesting because in this book you touch on this issue when you're talking about neurophysicalism and subjective realism right and i thought you implied that whatever explanation there is if it's to close the explanatory gap it would have to go beyond correlation would have to say why a particular kind of neuronal activity leads to a particular feeling, let's say. Otherwise, you're stuck with epiphenomenalism.
1: Yeah, I think that this thing I call subjective realism, again, it's an inference to the best explanation. So it's very much, as it were, an empirical hypothesis. But the idea is something like this, that one thing I try to do... Back to that earlier book, Consciousness Reconsidered, I had this idea that if you're going to study consciousness empirically, you've got to come at it from all the perspectives that we think are relevant. And the main perspectives that seemed relevant were obviously something like the psychological and the behavioral, but then the neuroscientific. You want to look at when people say things like, I'm having an experience of an orange after image." you want to look at what parts of the brain are lighting up because presumably that's going to be relevant. You want to look how it affects behavior and you want people to say as much as they possibly can about the first-person phenomenological feel of the experience. So I call that the natural method and the idea was that these are three different perspectives to look at a phenomenon that, again, as an inference to the best explanation, we think takes place mostly in the body. So the idea of the subjective realism or the neurophysicalism that I talk about is just operating with the assumption that we are material beings living in a material world, and that we're 100% animal. This is what I call, you know, taking the message of Darwin seriously. And that we have no special parts that are non-physical, a la Descartes or most other traditions. That's sort of the background assumptions. I don't in this work or in most of my recent work give arguments for why you should assume physicalism. Mm -hmm. It seems obvious to me that it's the best bet. And what that provides you with though is a way of explaining why people have these powerful intuitions that we can't close the explanatory gap. It's that there are three perspectives that we can take actually on the human mind, first personal, third personal, and some people nowadays talk about the second personal.
0: Do you find any practical upshot, given that you pay so much attention to phenomenology, to, say, Merleau-Ponty makes this argument we talked about in a recent episode that these naturalistic presuppositions that you're talking about have to grow out of the phenomenology itself, that our basic starting point in philosophy is something like where Descartes started. Mm -hmm. And so we can describe the field of phenomena, and then abstracted from that are all the things that go to make up natural science. And for Merleau-Ponty and Sartre and the rest of those folks has had some fairly powerful practical upshot. Yes, you can still do science and all that, but there's some part of our experience that you might say is more primary than science right. than this naturalism. And this maybe is what is fueling what some might think as you and your work oppose naturalism to supernaturalism, right? right. As opposed to philosophical non-naturalism. Something yeah, like- right. What G.E. Moore, when he argues that uh, good is not a natural property in the world because we can't reduce it to something about physical objects or really anything about pleasure or anything like that. It has to be something sui generis that shows up in experience. And this is exactly
1: the kind of thing that you see in Sartre and these other folks. Right. No, it's very helpful what you just said. So. I'm not entirely seeing how exactly the GE Moore goes with the Merleau-Ponty sort, but you sound like you're more up on on, uh, that than I am, but uh, I'll I'll say something about that. Okay. So there is this idea, uh, you're right in some of the uh, French and German phenomenologists, and they do seem relevantly different in different books. I mean, I remember reading Merleau-Ponty's Phenomenology of Perception and also his The Structure of Behavior. And I thought both were just brilliant works where he knew a lot about empirical psychology. Mm -hmm. Unlike, it seems to me, Edmund Husserl, or even Jean-Paul Sartre. So there's one meaning, right, of phenomenology that means to start with the appearances wherever they may sit. And of course, in Husserl, there's this idea that one starts by suspending the natural attitude. That is, it stops by, for example, being committed to something that G.E. Moore in another mood would say everybody's committed to, namely belief that there is an external world. So you have to suspend the natural standpoint and do really thick description of the way appearances seem across a lot of domains. You might say on one reading of the phenomenological tradition, it means you should always take the experiential as having not only genetic priority in the sense of it comes first, of course mm-hmm. it comes first, but also some kind of methodological priority for what the philosophical method is or what philosophers ought to believe in. I don't buy that. And the reason might be, this could be a story about my own philosophical training. I mean, I was really raised by Quine and Quineans to believe that the best philosophy is continuous with science. So although exactly what you just were pointing to is at stake in some of the contemporary debates. So, for example, some people will say things like, as if it's evidence, when I examine my own experience, it doesn't seem as if it has any neural texture to it. Now, I just take that as a datum about the way experience seems, Mm -hmm. but I don't take it seriously as a datum about how experience is realized. That is, I take it seriously that, again, the inference to the best explanation nowadays is that experiences just are physical events in brains, even though they don't reveal themselves that way.
2: Is that any different than something like saying, when I'm growing up, I don't really feel like I have any DNA? Yep, It's the
1: same. Now, no one would presumably want to make an inference about what their body contained of chromosomes and in the cells and how the cells reproduce based on introspection. No one would ever think it was authoritative to say, I'm not aware of any E. coli in my stomach, therefore, I don't have any E. coli in my stomach. Or I'm not aware of the number of E. coli in my stomach, therefore, there is no number of E. coli in my stomach. So, I think this is at some level, I mean, obviously, no phenomenologist would have to take And this is where phenomenology, in ways that I don't completely understand myself, will claim that they differ from introspectionist. You might say, well, obviously, you can't introspect certain things about your embodied being. So the question is, I mean, I remember when I wrote Consciousness Reconsidered, people would ask me, okay, suppose you have neuroscientific data, psychological data, and experiential data. What do you do when they conflict, which is Trump? I take it from what you just said about Merleau-Ponty and maybe Sartre and Husserl that their move would be when push comes to shove, the experiential will trump. My usual view is wait and see, depends on the case, which is Trump. There's no general answer to the question, which is Trump. But if you wanted to have a theory about the mind in the natural world, watch seriously what your science is saying and uh, use that as part of the data source.
2: It strikes me that there's sort of... um... It depends a little bit upon what you're trying to embrace with your explanation. Right. For instance, the role of experience is going to be different than a like a causal explanation. Okay. Just in a simple way, the way a baseball player understands the way they hit the ball might have nothing at all to do with the way it actually happens from, the say, a physics standpoint and the way that's perfectly articulable and maybe even understandable from the standpoint of me looking at the ball and saying, well, the bat has a certain amount of mass and the ball's coming in with a certain speed and there's this angle relation. And based upon that, I can tell you how far he's going to hit that ball every single time. Mm -hmm. And his experience, his way of understanding that activity is not going to be like that generally. That's right. And it doesn't seem to me that it's even a question of trumping. It has a question of the way in which experience is working in our consciousness. And the thing that might apply to this sort of trumping business would be, The way in which experience feeds on itself as being not a material thing, but being part of the larger activity that it speaks to itself in higher orders that matter. I mean that that, for instance, in kind of a, a straightforward that my idea about something might affect the way I think about something else.
1: That's right. So two things you said I think are exactly right. I mean, I'm a big believer in the importance of really good phenomenology, and this is why I love, say, in my case, William James so much. And when I did read Merleau-Ponty and Sartre on the Gaze, I mean, these are like unbelievable moments or David Foster Wallace about the phenomenology of addiction. There's no better descriptions about the way things seem than some of this kind of writing. But I think you put your finger on the topic. It's one thing to take phenomenology as authoritative for describing the way experience seems, but not as explanatory about what there is or what it supervenes on or what the causal laws are that are governing it. I think that's exactly right. Now, you could even make a further distinction just using this language of the way experience seems as opposed to the way I understand it. I mean, it's an interesting question and both introspectionists, psychologists, and phenomenologists were all on about this, you want on the one hand virgins when it comes to describing experience, like people who aren't used to like articulating all the time because they may be going way too meta and theorizing about the way their experiences are. I mean, imagine the baseball player who just knows so much about baseball that he incorporates a lot of theory into his description about how things seem. Now, it's possible, of course, that his theories about what he's doing when he swings at a curveball as opposed to a changeup, as opposed to a fastball, are actually the way it seems to him intuitively. There are also possibilities that they're not aligned. But I think you're right, that the role of phenomenology typically is best at describing and taxonomizing the way mental states seem to individuals. And for that, it's the only show in town at this point. For, again, good evolutionary reasons, we have good first personal access to our own experiences at certain levels or experiences of certain kinds. And uh, not paying attention to that during the heyday of behaviorism was a problem. And thankfully, in the early 90s, when Dennett and Searle and I and a lot of other people started to talk again in the Anglo-American tradition about the inner, that was welcome because you obviously can't leave it out.
0: This seems like a good transition to... You basically say in this book that the Buddhists, if they didn't invent phenomenology, at least the first systematic phenomenological text that we have access to. Right. So you talked about the Abhidhamma or Abhidharma, depending on what language you're taking this from. Right,
1: exactly. I
0: spent a little time looking at this because you can find texts of this online. Of course, it's kind of hard to figure out exactly which part to look at. or (laughs) There are secondary sources from hundreds of years later that sum it up that are just as difficult as the primary. I thought I'd just read a paragraph of this just to give folks a flavor of what this sounds like, because I found it nearly impenetrable, certainly extremely redundant, internally redundant. And it just made me question, like, well, what is phenomenology in the first place? It's a systematic description of experience, but really we see a lot of lists in here. So so it starts out the whole thing. Chapter one, the eight main types of thought relating to the sensuous universe, which are the states that are good when a good thought concerning the sensuous universe has arisen, which is accompanied by happiness and associated with knowledge and has its object, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a mental state or whatnot. Then there is contact, feeling, perception, thinking, and then they give 50 more things. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Now,
0: these or whatever other incorporeal causally induced states there are on that occasion. These are states that are good. And then there's a section after for each of these things that defines it. I'll just read the first one. What on that occasion is contact, which it says that's a translation of Faso Mm -hmm. in the Pali. The contact, which on that occasion is touching, the being brought into contact, the state of having been brought into touch with. This is the contact that there then is. So, Got it. Great. And then there's a million more definitions just like that, that either seem totally uninformative or, or I had a really hard time figuring out how to take this. But
1: you seem to come away from this having gained quite a bit. Well, yes and no. Just like any taxonomy can be, it can be kind of boring. But think about it this way. Let's try this. So you might say if you want to do, let's forget about what phenomenology attaches to, whether it's about your incorporeal soul or mind or about your brain or and your experience. This book or these books, as you say, I mean, one of the things that actually makes Buddhism or the Buddhisms impossibly difficult is that there are, as you say, the original texts, which are not, of course, dictated by God, these are compiled by wise people, and then there are commentators. So there's no end to the tradition. There's no Pope in Rome who dictates for Buddhists what you're supposed to believe. There's no end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. There's no Koran. There's none of these things.
0: Lots of things to chant, though. Lots yeah, <laughs> a
1: lot of things to chant. It depends on whether they're chanters or not, and that varies from place to place. But one of the things when I've been among friends in, um, especially the Tibetan Buddhist friends, They will say that the amazing thing about Buddhism compared to Western science is that Western science is good at taxonomizing behaviors, it's good at analyzing specific body parts which do certain things, whether it be in anatomy or medicine or whatever, but that we're pathetic at having any tradition which certifies as legitimate the activity of, again, what we might call phenomenology. And they claim that they've been doing it for 2,500 years. And if you go to the more interesting parts of the Abhidhamma than you found, maybe some of these lists can be interpreted this way. You might ask yourself this, how many mental states are there does a person have? Now, you start this way. We do this actually in the West a little bit. So, in 1871 and 72, Darwin wrote the book, The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a really, really important book, and I think you'll see how it (laughs) connects up. So... Darwin had this idea that there were some universal facial expressions. And the book is filled with pictures of London actors on the stage and also of canines. And then a lot of speculation about what emotions might be universal across the world. He was asking his colonialist friends for information like, do you see people always nodding for yes? and shaking their head for no. Do you see the same face as the angry face that we see on the London stage in Papua New Guinea or in sub-Sahara Africa? So Darwin was looking for behavioral markers. Now there's an interesting sort of history of science story here where Margaret Mead had a student, Paul Ekman, And she gave Paul Ekman the exercise of going off and doing his doctoral dissertation, disproving Darwin and showing that there were, in fact, no universal facial expressions. Notice so far, this is completely behavioral, right? Mm -hmm. They're looking for behavioral expressions. If you look in the Abhidhamma or the Abhidhammas, they're already 2,500 years ago exploring the inner texture of the way emotions seem to the owner of it. And they're taxonomizing them in terms of negative and positive emotional feeling states. Sometimes these are called afflictions. Sometimes they're called wholesome and unwholesome, where they're being defined in terms of their affective feel. So eventually in that Western story, what happens is that Paul Ekman goes off. He goes around the world and he goes to places like Papua New Guinea, and he finds out that there are in fact six, or now he's up to seven, Faces, which he thinks are culturally universal, which come with the equipment. And what then Ekman does by the early 70s, he and his colleagues are publishing articles in Science Magazine showing that there are behavioral measures on galvanic skin responses, on blood pressure, on heart rates, and so on and so forth that are attached to the following emotions. Fear, anger, happy, sad, surprise, disgust, and now he has contempt. Those faces, he claims, are absolutely universal. They show up in the facial musculature as measured by dental x-rays the exact same way, etc. What's interesting about this story, supposing it's true, there's pretty good evidence, I think, at this point that it's true, is that there's nothing said in our tradition about what it feels like. It's sort of a Thomas Nagel point. Mm -hmm. What it feels like to be angry what it feels like to be surprised, what it feels like to be sad. There's no textured, thick phenomenological descriptions of these states in our tradition. So I think one of the reasons that I respectfully went to the Abhidhamma and maybe saw more there is that I was around so many Tibetan Buddhists who were bragging all the time about how they might not be good at telling you what the face does when a person (laughs) goes into a certain emotional state, but they have much more thickly textured accounts of what it seems like to the person himself. The other thing that I think the, the Abhidhamma is supposed to do in all these taxonomies, and there is a lot of biblical work like this. I don't want to say that we don't see this in our the Old and the New Testaments. I mean, for example, I talk about the six main mental afflictions. So these are things which Buddhists say are states of mind, which whether or not you behave according to them or not, These are almost always bad. So attachment Mm -hmm. or craving, anger, pridefulness, ignorance, delusion, afflictive doubt, things like this. So what the Abhidhamma is trying to present us with is what I call a simultaneous normative and descriptive taxonomy of the mental states, which I think in the Husserlian sense are pretty universal. So at this point within Buddhism, there's a claim that everybody has the capacity to go into these states. And if you go into them, there's some of these states which are good, and their being good or what they call wholesome depends not only on the way the state feels, but also on its object. So if you're happy that you just murdered the bad guy, the happiness part is good, but that you just murdered the bad guy is maybe not a content. What Brentano, Hustrell's teacher and Freud's teacher, would have said, the content makes a difference there. So there's subtle taxonomy of the state of mind being happy that you finished your yard work that's wholesome. And being happy that you got revenge on your enemy, that would be unwholesome. Not because of the attitude state, but the content of the state. So there's an attempt to actually do a kind of a moral psychology in this way. And that's why I appreciate the book and give it its sort of kudos for doing these taxonomies in a way that reveals also the values of the Buddhist tradition. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our
0: store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a personally examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.
3: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block.